All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, puppets? What? What the fuck, puppets? Where'd that one come from? I don't feel like I've said that before. Have I said that before? Somebody, please, go back through the 1,400 episodes and just skim through to see if I've said what the fuck, puppets. It seems like I have. I'm sure I've done it like 90 times. But listen to me, what the fuck, puppets? (laughs) What the fuck, buds? How's it going? Oh, thank you. Yes, you did miss my birthday. It was uh, Tuesday, but thank you. How could you have known? Many of you didn't. And I appreciate the birthday greetings. I'm 59 years old. And I felt it coming. I knew it was coming all year. I knew it was coming. Like right after I turned 58, I'm like, man, 59 is coming. And then 60 if I'm lucky. But I always feel lucky. I don't project that much into the future. I try to use my imagination to think of horrible things that can happen to me in the world. I don't think about, hey, what am I going to be doing a month from now, a week from now, tomorrow, you know, 15 minutes from now? No, I'd rather think like, oh, fuck, we're in trouble. We're all in trouble. Oh, my God. What do you got planned for the future? What future? What are you talking about? But uh, I did have a birthday. I had a birthday. I could tell you about it. I could. But let me tell you about uh, the show for a second. Abigail Disney is on the show. Now, look, she is the daughter of Roy Disney and the grandniece of Walt. Her grandfather was Walt's brother. Yeah, that Disney. How is there? Is there any other Disney's around that aren't Disney Disney's? She's a documentary filmmaker and producer. She's produced dozens of documentaries going back to her uh, first one in 2008. Pray the devil back to hell, which I have to watch. She told me I had to watch it. She's all, I, I want to watch it. I'm not, you know, you can't, I'm, I'm busy learning how awful uh, America was, you know, to the Jews. I got it. I got to sort of pace myself. I'm watching the Ken Burns one that is uh, basically saying that you think it's anti-Semitic and racist now. Well, before the Nazis, it was even worse. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, Abigail is also a, a prominent activist, in particular on the issue of pay equity. And she's been particularly critical of the global corporation that bears her family name. You know, Disney. She's the co-director, along with Kathleen Hughes, of the new documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, which I watched. And uh, got me back into a zone, man. Got me back into that zone that I used to be in every day. When I uh, was hosting the morning show on Air America, Morning Sedition, just really locked me in. When was the last time you had talked about the Powell memo? Yeah, exactly. Huh? When was the last time you talked about Milton Friedman? Uh-huh. Yeah, coming at you. Look out. Yeah, the Powell memo. I was obsessed with the Powell memo. Obsessed. That was the key, man. That was the key. Everything that we're experiencing now from... uh the right and all the full spectrum of it is just payback for the 60s and payback for FDR. I'm learning two things from the docs I'm watching that they've been pissed off since FDR, since the New Deal. They've been pissed off since immigration policy changed in the 30s. And then there's a whole another group of them that were just furious at the possibility of socialism uh, infusing into our uh, into our structure here in the 60s. And ever since, they push him back. And the Powell memo set that standard. It basically says, we must do whatever we need to do at any cost to protect capitalism, no matter what. Anyway, this stuff comes up 
uh, in, in my conversation with Abigail. We don't need to talk about it right now because uh, I'm going to talk about uh, my birthday. I also want to talk about uh, what I mentioned on Monday. I'll be doing a live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater in London on Wednesday, October 19th. My guest will be comedian and writer David Badil. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets. Yeah, I just read this guy's book, but apparently he has a long track record as a comedian and television creator and everything else. It's weird, you know, that you know, Britain's no slouch in the media and content and, uh, and theater and movies and TV uh, world, but I don't know much about it. I'm not tapped in. I got to get a little tapped in. I want to show up to talk to David Bedil just about Jew stuff. Let's you know. Let's go the gamut of of straight up Jew stuff and and uh, uh, kind of uh, subtle Jew stuff and just hidden Jew stuff. Who wrote this? A Jew? I don't know. Probably. Who could know? Let's look at the names. Oh yeah, Jews. So look, I uh, had a birthday. I gotta be honest with you guys. I've been uh, spiritually uncomfortable, um, emotionally uncomfortable, mentally uncomfortable. I think it had something to do with my birthday, had something to do with uh, my mother is going into surgery today, and I had to deal with that on my birthday. We had to make sure that she was, it was kind of spontaneous. My mother's having spontaneous surgery. She was scheduled to do it at the end of the month, and then she decided, well, they got an opening. Why not do it at the end of the week? My brother, who lives down there, is not even going to be there. It's just been... All right, a little impulsive, but you know, I had to on my birthday I had to wrangle that, make sure she was set up for some home in home care if necessary, and on the phone with my cousin and dealing with that, dealing with my mom, who's not that much older than me, as I mentioned, just a little older than me, my mother, only twenty two years older than me, my mother is, and she's going into surgery. My dad, interestingly, who as you know is uh, you know beginning uh, the uh, the dementia process. I don't think he'd mind me saying that to be honest with you uh i don't think he'd remember <laughs> Woo-hoo, man i threw myself a softball on that one the only reason i'm laughing and it sounds like i'm kind of glib is that uh rosie my dad's wife has been uh making him listen to these shows so like if anyone's going to be like the odds of him knowing me when i call are, are going to be pretty good because he's listening to this so he couldn't figure out how to listen to it by himself for, I'd say, about 1,340 episodes. But now, I guess, uh, it's something she does. She just sits him in front of the computer, and he can listen to his son ramble on and talk to famous people. Hi, Dad. How are you? It's me, Mark, your son. Hello. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hi, Rosie. But anyways, my point was, you know, my dad, when he was uh, in it, was an orthopedic surgeon. And when I saw him in Phoenix, you know, I was talking to him about the procedure my mother's getting uh, on her neck. But my father used to do some of that surgery when he was in, you know, uh, you know, at the top of his game, you know, doing backs and knees and necks, you know, that was legs, hips. Yeah, my dad was a, you know, just a hammer and saw man. Yeah. But, uh, but when I saw him in Phoenix, I asked him about it and he was like, he just locked right in, man. Told told me about the operation. Said it was pretty uh pretty common. Not a long operation. You know, recovery is going to be you know a little a little you know painful and tricky. But but as far as the operation goes, simple stuff. Simple stuff. The old man said, and he locked right in and explained it to me and everything when I brought it up. And I called him the other day to say she was going in. He's like, yeah, it should be good. It should be. Uh, I said, well, what about the post op? He's like, yeah, oh, I should just have a collar. Like right right there, man. 
It was all right there. My dad, who was always great to engage with medical problems, which is why, as I've explained before, I had a uh, history of uh, hypochondria, was because, like, you know, how can I get my dad's full attention? Dad, I think I have cancer. No, you don't. Uh, my arm hurts. You want to check it out? Bring it. Come over here. Let me feel it. And you do all the little wiggling and pullings. That's what they do in orthopedics. They'll pull and wiggle your arm. Hold it still. All right. Does it hurt? All right. Hold on. Pull it. Ow. It hurt when you did that. It did? No, not. It doesn't hurt, but you hurt it. All right. My dad broke my leg and my foot. Do you know that? Yeah. I don't know if it was, uh, I wouldn't say it was for experimentation. I think it was just a accident, negligence. Here's, here's how he broke my leg in fourth grade. It's been a while since I told these stories, I think. But maybe it'll make... Dad, these are for you. Remember this? How, let's share some... I'm going to share some memories with my, with my audience. Remember, Dad, when we were skiing? And uh, he's listening. You remember, Dad, when we were skiing and I had those Cubco bindings, which were supposed to be the safest bindings? Remember those Cubcos? But they kept popping off and I was not having a fun day. And I kept you know, complaining that my skis kept popping off. And then you tightened them up, boy. You tighten those bindings up, Dad. You remember this? And the next time I fell, boom, spiral fracture on my tibia. I remember you said that pretty quickly. You're like, yep, that's a spiral fracture on the tibia. I'm like, well, can we, can we get somebody can we, down the fucking slope in a toboggan? Is it a toboggan? They just strapped me into the, one of those sweds with the ski patrol. Yeah, I was the guy in the stretcher, the, the sled stretcher going down, put it in a splint. They threw me in the back of the blazer. My old man did. I'm in the back of the blazer with the splint on, going down the mountain, bouncing around in the back of that fucking orange blazer with a splint on a freshly broken leg till we got to the hospital. Yep, that happened. Right, Dad? That was a good day. You remember that day? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut into the fun day to the ski time. But we got to the hospital, and guess who uh, set my leg? Yep, my dad. Had the, I had the full leg cast all the way up to my hip. Very difficult to pee, very difficult to bathe. It, it itched all the way up. Classic plaster cast. Old school. But long story short, I still walk funny. But that's because my dad ran over my foot. Remember, Dad, that day where I was at, for summer school and, uh, you know, we were dropping me off. I was in the back seat. David Kleinfeld was in the front seat. We were taking him somewhere. I guess he maybe, I don't know why, but I was getting out for summer school and I opened the door. I hung my legs out. I reached around to get my books and you took off and the, and that back wheel rolled over my foot and I was on the ground screaming and then you backed back over it. And, uh, you know, I was in trouble and crying and screaming in the seat and, uh, you didn't think it was broken. And then when we got to the hospital and they, x-rayed it and it was like it popped like a fucking <laughs> like a like a like a apple under there it didn't shatter but it popped a bit you're like yeah i knew it was broken i could tell by your face yeah could you yeah so because i didn't do any physical therapy my right foot kind of wings out but i'm not blaming you dad i'm okay i'm all right i'm in good shape i'm in good shape it was you know we live and learn. We do things. We make mistakes. You didn't know. You didn't know you were going to run me over. And you didn't know that the bindings would not release if you tighten them all the way. Like a screw holding something in. You didn't know. I'm not blaming you. Right? You didn't know, right? You didn't. <laughs> so look, Abigail Disney turned out to be a pretty great conversation. I didn't know what to expect because I watched the doc. I watched her in the doc. But, but you know, I'm talking... This her. 
Her grandfather was Walt Disney's brother. She grew up Disney. And that's a pretty small group. All right? So it was kind of, we were able to spread the conversation around the issues, but also around her upbringing. It was kind of great. The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales is now playing in theaters and is available on digital on-demand platforms. And you can go to AmericanDreamDoc.com to find theaters near you. And uh, this is me talking to uh, Abigail Disney. I think there is a big difference with film, in a way. Yeah. I think there's... the look and also, uh, you know, you don't get as many shots. Yeah. You know? But, but with film, yeah. I mean, it just costs money, you know? And of so course. Digital, you just roll and roll and roll and roll and roll and roll yeah. and roll. Sure. And Why like, not? If somebody sneaks something in there. I mean, that's the beauty of digital, you yeah. know? Because you never know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we interviewed right. the guy right. who used to be one of the main lobbyists for the NRA for yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and during a break, he showed us that he could still do the splits. <laughs> so you had to have that. You never get none on film. Well, that's well, that, that's humanizing the guy. <laughs> exactly. And occasionally you do want to humanize the people. Well, that was for uh, Armor, Armor of, of Light. Light. Yeah, we had a lot of stuff with NRA people that we never wound up using. Just it became a different film along the way. Oh, which really? Is the other great thing about digital, honestly. Well, it's also the weird thing about making choices in documentary. Yeah. Is that you know if you have an ideological through line that is uh, yeah. being. Uh, compromised by the humanity and of yeah, the people <laughs> exactly well, you know i don't i don't think of what what i do is ideological so much as um uh, spiritual sure oh yeah crazy yeah um not spiritual you know god wise yeah. but uh spiritual in the sense of like the spirit of the place and the spirit of the people and the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish yeah that you find in people in the yeah. most unexpected ways right and you follow that right right about you know about community human yeah. perseverance uh, yeah. you know yeah. uh fight yeah and and in armor of light what we yeah. were looking for was like are you willing to in good faith come out of your little um bunker you know, and just talk to me about it because like, what was the, the it was it was about uh, 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 an anti-abortion minister, right? Primarily, and 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 but he was pro-gun rights. Well, he was. So he was. I mean, the way the film started yeah. was I picked up the phone and called a bunch of different guys who were pro-life, and um, that was hard, right, for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I said, look. I I believe you're in good faith. Yeah. You believe what you believe. I yeah. believe what I believe. We right. Googled each other. We could fight. What if we chose not to fight? Yeah. Like, what if we chose if we just talked about the things that we share? Because I also think murder is bad. Yeah. And, you know, and so perhaps so you we have could that just, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's like choose to inhabit this little island of what we share yeah. and see if it grows under yeah. our feet. Right. We just live on it for right. a minute. And he was just amazing the way he was willing to do that with me. And so I sort of downloaded to him, like, okay, so every life is sacred. Um, well, then, like, why did we take that duty to retreat out of self-defense law? Uh-huh. I don't understand that. Right. And so, it, you know, kind of like that stuff, the most crazy out there, aggressively pro-death uh-huh. stuff that's in a lot of gun law. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk to him about. And he said, he, he kind of narrowed his eyes, just like you did. Yeah. And, um, and he said, I have never thought about it before. Really? Yeah. Because he's so caught up. Yeah. And, th- and that's kind of the magic of just like going to somebody you're not supposed to talk to. 
Yeah. And saying things you're not supposed to say. Yeah, because everybody gets caught up in their belief system Mm -hmm. and and there's a certain momentum to it that doesn't enable a lot of reflection or they don't take the time to do it. Right. And you're highly aware of the people around you who really there are consequences you know, right. for right. saying something or, or admitting, you know, you might be right about that. And um, so that's why you go quietly and it's just the two of you when you offer friendship. Yeah, right. And and those kind of not knowing what those consequences are, insulating yourself in a point of view with a certain community of people has now become uh, extreme. Yeah, exactly. So like not only do they not see consequences, uh, but they, they don't register them as real Right. Or that, you know, it's right. just it, now with sort of uh, bubble culture. I mean, when I crazy. was so so all the way up to Donald Trump's nomination. Yeah. That minister from Armor of Light, Rob yeah. Shank, and I would go from church to church, far right wing churches yeah. across the Midwest. Yeah. We'd show the film and then we'd stay there and talk. And and I, I was like a space alien because I would say I am a pro-choice feminist all my adult life. Yeah. But I don't think you're crazy or bad. Yeah. Can we just talk? Yeah. And so there would happen these extraordinary conversations. Yeah. And for them, it seemed crazy that I, you know, I wasn't an obvious murderer. Or I didn't drink children's blood. I didn't yeah. delight in the... In the you yeah. know in this awfulness, and that I had a decent set of human values. I mean, one of the things Rob said to me was the most surprising thing to me about you, as I got to know you, was how much you loved your children. Huh. <laughs> and, and I just I can't get over that. And so that's the kind of thing. Like if you go to Krispy Kreme, but I yeah. only go to McDonald's. Yeah. And if you, you know the way we're segregating now. Yeah. And and that kind of amazing conversation that we had went right until the end of July of 2016. Yeah. And then it was like a hammer came down. Right. Yeah. And With the Trump presidency. Yeah. And and just his nomination. I mean, honestly. Yeah. People weren't sure that summer. And, you know, we, I was talking to people, well, it's maybe Ted Cruz, maybe it's Marco uh-huh. Rubio, and, you know, and they were trying to figure it out. And then it was like the, an edict came down. Yeah. I mean, they don't really have a pope, but they right. they have like a bunch of guys that serve like a pope. Yeah. And the and the bunch of guys had a meeting and made a decision. This that was, was, it was w- when they got Mike Pence. It was like, Within bam. the inv- evangelical community? Yeah. 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 But, okay, so going back to um, what, what this... Uh, what this new doc is about, um, which is a family thing in a way. Yeah, very much. And but you, as we were coming in here, you said you uh, the, the new doc is the American Dream and other fairy tales. Yeah. That's what the, that's what it's it's called. And it's it's rooted in the the workplace dynamics and wage disparity disparity uh, in the Disney company. Mm-hmm. And you're at Disney. Yes, I am. And you grew up around here. Yes, I did. Glendale, <laughs> California. <laughs> there's a lot of Disney in Glendale. Yeah, there's tons of Disney in Glendale. Yeah, yeah. that's why we lived here. Right. Of, yeah. And and it was I think didn't it sort of come about wasn't the original Disney studio in Burbank right here? Um Hyperion yeah, um, right. Boulevard over um in Silver Lake. Close, yeah, exactly. In those bungalows. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and unfortunately it's a I think it's a Whole Foods now or or a Gelson's. Oh there yeah, um, right there. Where the studio actually was. Oh, that was. was where the studio yeah. was? Right yeah. there at Hyperion and yeah. Gundale? Glendale? Yeah. Right. Well, you know, over a little more over right. Hillwise and Silver Lake. And then and then they went to Burbank and they're still there on that lot in Burbank, but they moved animation to Glendale. To and, ABC. Um, Over there, right off of oh, the, before ABC, oh, they yeah. moved animation to Glendale for a long time, and they had um, Imagineering in Glendale because it was near Caltech. 
Okay, and that's where like they were training people almost? Imagineering was where they brought in people who were trained in engineering, but use their imaginations. Right. <laughs> that was what sure. it's called. And so they wanted people with physics degrees and electric engineering degrees. That's where the audio animatronics came from. I mean, I me- remember walking through there as a child. The animatronics for the park. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, like, I remember seeing the... The Wicked Witch's head in the in the ball, the hologram. Yeah. I, I remember watching them work on that. Day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, but this was but there was a whole different division around the film stuff, right? Yeah, and and the films were mostly on the lot over there in Burbank. Yeah, um, and they shot tons of stuff on that lot. They don't, you know, they didn't like locations. So your dad was Roy O. Disney. No, my Roy grandfather e. was Roy. Oh, my father was Roy E. My brother is Roy P. My nephew is Roy F. <laughs> and your and your grandfather's brother is Walt. And, so it was yeah. your grandfather and Walt that right. were the Disney's who built right. the company. Right. And it was called the Disney Brothers Studio at first. Originally. Yeah. And yeah. My, my grandfather didn't like it. Yeah. He, he's like, I'm not drawing. I'm not doing that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll take care of the books. I'll make sure the law is in order, all that stuff. But, you know, you just go do your imagination. Walt was right. the, uh, the, yeah. the mad wizard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, like, when you're growing up here, um, I mean... I have to imagine it was an all-immersive Disney experience all the time. Yeah, yes and no. Because was when you were a kid, your your father hadn't taken, he wasn't oh, part of the company No, my yet. father always was part of the company. Oh, he was? So my <laughs> father came up and was um, an editor, and he shot things, and he, he was making films all my whole time growing up. Oh, really? So if you watched on Sunday night, you yeah. know, and you saw like a story about a boy and his dog yeah. or a boy and his baby bear that got loose and he tamed him or something yeah, like that, yeah. that was my dad. He made tons he, of those. He made the uh, the weekly uh, yeah. Disney movies for yeah. the, what was it called? The Walt the Disney Wonderful Hour? Wonderful World of Wonderful Disney. Wonderful World of Disney with yeah. the fireworks. Yeah, that, there you go. That was the sound <laughs> of Little Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you remember, it was like Sunday night, right? Yeah, exactly. It was so fun. And the, like the, the, you know, once every year, year and a half, one of his would come on and we'd all sit oh, around yeah. and we'd applaud his, his name when it would come up. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. He made one he made one about a peregrine falcon. Huh. Um that he that was the one time he really fought with his father. This I'm really proud of him for this. Oh yeah. Um, because uh, they, they were making a story about how this peregrine falcon kept sitting on her eggs and they would break, and uh-huh. it was very tragic. And you know all the anthropomorphizing and you yeah, know yeah, so it was yeah. a whole plot. It wasn't. She was, was sad. It, it wasn't animated though, right? No, it was, no, it, it these was were like, live action. So right, he was right. really interested in the wildlife stuff. Yeah. And um, wildlife was very much part of what they were thinking about what they needed to do in the 1960s and 70s. And so Sunday night, much of it was wildlife. If you yeah, recall. right. Well, they, they'd have a narrator, right? And, exactly. Yes. Winston Hibbler would often do it. Right. He lived and, down the yeah. street. <laughs> so the mom bird sat down exactly. and, and then the egg broke. And so the narration is DDT. Um, because of DDT, the egg broke. And I guess Union Carbide was one of the sponsors. And so my grandfather was like, no, no, no you don't get to say Union Carbide. So and, the DDT that the, the bird was consuming was creating fragile eggs? Yeah. And that's the huge part of the story of yeah. the what the, why raptors almost disappeared from the United States. And so he remade the dialogue to say something like pesticides. Oh, okay. So... And, but it got through. And years later, people at the Audubon Society gave him this big award because like most of them had seen that as children. <laughs> and most of them had said, nope, we're not letting the peregrine falcon disappear. I, I love that because you never know. This is what's so great about making a film and, and, and doing it like with te- integrity. is like you don't know. Well, that, that little well, kid is seeing it and changing. That is an interesting message because, you know, all kids were taking in Disney in some way. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it was sort of a, a rare thing that it wasn't part of the consolidated vision mm-hmm. of, of Disney no. and that your dad just got committed to this idea yeah. and it planted these seeds. Yeah, yeah. And and he like, so he didn't know the seeds. He was just throwing them out there. But they it was were such like a, wildflowers. It was such a, a, a rare thing for Disney to do that. Well, yeah, kind of. I, I think maybe... I mean, when they started the wonderful world of Disney, I don't yeah. think they were thinking of this vertical integration and yeah. and you know synergy and all the rest of that. That came in the eighties yeah, 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 with yeah, yeah, the yeah. new leadership and sure. and a new ideology about business. I mean, that's so, partly what the film is about: is that ideology about business, corporate business, radically changed. Yeah, right. And I think that there's some good information in there. But like when you're a kid, so it starts with. I mean, really, the Disney operation starts with the movies, and then you know Walt, right? You know, designs this strange world yes exactly exactly so there's the little animated seven minute shorts right yeah. that's where he started the steamboat willie and whatnot. exactly and then and like everybody was churning out those things sure um and he had a hit with this thing called oswald the lucky rabbit but yeah. he hadn't nailed down the copyright uh-huh. and so it was taken from him by his distributor it's part of the reason my grandfather's important because he was like okay hold on now yeah. <laughs> and then they figured then they figured out licensing yeah. Um, because licensing was massive, right? So right. all of a sudden, little Mickey Mouse toys and the beginnings of the watches and things like that start happening. So, oh, look, two income streams. Yeah, yeah. The the movie was crazy to make yeah. a whole feature length film. Yeah. I mean, because like, can you imagine every single frame was hand drawn, hand painted, multiple layers? Because he invented a, a multi planar camera yeah. to give the sense of three dimensions. Yeah. He invented that shit. Yeah. So he, you know, it's kind of amazing. My father was born in 1930. They were very, very successful at that point. Yeah. But she said, I really wasn't sure when our next meal was coming from. Really? Because Your every- Your mom said that? My grandmother. Oh, yeah. She said every single thing that they made, they plowed right back into the company. Okay. And so for the first 30 years, wow. it was just risk, 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 risk. And somehow my grandfather was along for that ride. Being the sensible guy he was, Yeah. and thank God he had, there was a sensible guy there- because they, I don't think would have been able to survive. So Walt was just, you know, kind of a, a chaotic, yeah, uh, yeah. A, a, you know, genius. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, which is not to say he didn't have a business sense or whatever, but he wasn't like planning that I will have this empire and that yeah. everything will be connected. He was really driven by the creativity. Well, you know, a lot of people put that on him, you know, because like even. Me when I was talking to my producer, I'm like, yeah, I want to find out if Walt was uh, anti-Semitic, and my producer was he kind of said, well, I think Walt was a a, a, a kind of a, a pre-war conservative, mm-hmm. and whatever was part of that ideology was probably there, but he was not any sort of rabid, you know, fascist you know, or he, well. I- he 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 bordered on rabid fascism instead of my grandfather borderline right <laughs> borderline uh, rabid fascism and 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 you can go back and you can find like the original three pigs have you ever seen that the three little pigs I don't think so. Okay, so the original Three Little Pigs movie is was one of their sort of I think it was sixteen minutes. Yeah. So it was a bit of a pushing it experiment, yeah. and the original um, Big Bad Wolf is a Jewish peddler. Mm. So I kind of remember yeah, seeing this. They somewhere. were not shy about delving into the stereotypes if it served them or they thought it well, served them to do so. And and it got bad. If you look at Dumbo and the Crows, one of those crows is named Jim Crow. Right. So, it, you know, and then when they made 
um, Song of the South, look, people from the NAACP came Freaked to out. the studio and yeah. said, please don't do it this way. Please talk to us. Yeah. Paul Robeson turned down the part. I mean, so they knew they were making it something well, that was well, I mean, really Well, that's sort of the argument is that like, you, you know, that Disneyland in and of itself, in, in its mm-hmm. enclosed way, is some sort of American fascist fantasy. Well, Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, it is and it isn't. The pro- the thing is that, like, I think what um, they they were men of their time. Um, and that's not an excuse. Right. To 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 not give a shit that the NAACP says this is these are the ways in which this hurts. So, yeah. Please so don't the, do it. That voice was out there. Then. That it wasn't voice like, was there. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know that this would be horrible. They knew. What and year was they, that? And they Song, of the um, Song of the South is 50, I want to say 58, 54, right. maybe. But like, okay, we've got a civil rights movement. Yeah. Things are happening. You know, there are consequences. And and they had an idea of how the world worked, right? Yeah. And in the idea of how the world worked, sadly, that involved people remaining in their places. I think that for them, it was more a question of order than superiority or anything like that. Oh, don't yeah. don't yeah, mess with the system. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 Walt when he builds Disneyland, I mean, I, one of the most interesting things to me about the place is how unconscious you are of where you are once you're there. Yeah, even, like I mean, I've been there. I was there when I was a kid and I think I've been there as an adult maybe twice because yeah. of people that I've been yeah. dating who yeah. <laughs> were fixated on it. Tell me that wasn't a deal breaker. I mean, no, I that's but you kind yeah, of the, odd to me always. What when there are grown-ups who yeah. are fixated on Disneyland? Yeah. I'm not sure what it was about, but when I went back, you do feel you're kind of fascinated by the design of it, that how yeah. effective you are in a, a different yeah. world fairly yeah. quickly. Well, the very the very first thing, the very most important part of the design is this huge um, um, earthward mark berm around the park. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and it's planted and landscaped and everything like yeah. that. So you're not even conscious you're going through some kind of barrier. Yeah. When you walk in through the gate, it's yeah. very subtle. Yeah. Um, but it, it grows pretty tall. And yeah. so you don't even see the tops of the buildings right. around you. Exactly. It's quite remarkable, yeah. actually, piece yeah. of design. And that was very, very conscious. This is this is a perfect world. And We're this gonna is show all you wall- a perfect world. Right. And and so there's 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 benign and passive prejudice and then there's active and malign prejudice. Right. I, that's how I divide it in my head. And much of what's in Disneyland is the benign yeah. and passive kind in the sense that, like, I'm going to replicate everything good I remember about my Midwest upbringing. And, and so, like, here's this Main Street and these are the barbershop quartet. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. and it's all just very perfect. And yeah. so wh- when we decided in the film to kind of bring race up... It honestly feels impertinent. You know, it feels like, well, what has that got to do with anything? You know, there's no, no nothing happening here. But yeah. of course, the thing's happening there by design. Um, and in the early days, part of that whole barbershop quartet routine and whatever yeah. is Aunt Jemima yeah. singing and dancing and tap dancing. Yeah. You know, and and so they were they were tapping into the stereotypes when it helped them to advance a narrative because they saw the place as a narrative but a place right and this and 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 that also reflected some of the uh like the stories that the films were telling i mean exactly and but but when you were a kid you know you're in how many like cousins and stuff do you have how many disney's Mm -hmm. what's the extended disney family it's it's not as big as you would imagine walt had two daughters yeah and um his first daughter diane um married and had I think eight children. Oh, that's a lot. So there were a lot of kids. Yeah. And um, Sharon had 
three children. Yeah. Um, and and so obviously we we were as cousins. We were all lots of them around the same age. We saw a lot of them. Then there was kind of a falling out. My father was an only child, and then there's the four of us. Yeah. And um, after Walt died, my grandfather kind of stepped in and helped finish Disney World, and you know, and then died very suddenly, almost immediately afterwards. And then there was some leadership um, questions, Vacuum. and so there was a really a rivalry, right? The nephew or the son-in-law. I mean, it was this classic patriarchal setup. Right? Your dad or the son-in-law? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so there was like kind of a rivalry. Feelings got really charged and yeah. bad. It was really unfortunate and very personal. But when you all were kids, y'all were got we along. We hung out and we loved each other. Where did everybody live? What was the big family house? Where was Walt's house? Walt's house was in Homely P- Hills. Yeah. Um, and so once, um, once things got rough between my dad and our cousin. Yeah. That we just stopped seeing each other, yeah, which is heartbreaking and bad. I yeah, mean, I hated that. So we never really saw them, and we grew up in Toluca Lake, um, which is like just minutes right down here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and that's so you're just right across it's town. Ter- yeah, and it's and you're all in L.A. It's kind of trippy yeah. in the sense that like where so once you kind of grow up and you're a Disney and you know you're vested yes in the company in and, many ways yeah <laughs> and uh, you know when do you start. You know, outside of your childhood experience and the insulated nature of of being privy to all this, you know, magical stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you do with your life? You know, once you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the question of my life, right? <laughs> what do you do with your life? Because you know, it feels like there are two options. One is to turn your back, run, 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 never but look I mean, back. But as a kid, thing. are you running around? Are you trying acting? I mean, what do you you know? I well, I went off to college. And uh, started to study English literature and just thought that was like the best thing ever. Um, Yale. Oh, yeah. And so from there, I went on to get a PhD and I had settled in New York. And so I stayed in New York. And honestly, being in New York was great because I just I never really liked L.A. very much. I didn't love the city. Um, but your other siblings stayed out. Yeah, here? yeah, and and I and I just dreamed of being in a different kind of a place. And there was something about New York, everybody bumping into each other. Sure. L.A. is kind of like I'm here. The cars going by over there. You don't. Sure. Like, there's a lot. How, how how but how deep was the you know was there a, 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 a was it rebellious? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do I really have to tell you that I was no, rebellious. but but I mean you know because it just means that you, you know something. The brainwashing of a of a childhood uh, in 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 yeah. the Disney family, yeah, you know, outside of the park and everything else. I mean, right. that's a lot. That's a lot. That's not just sort of like yeah. my parents are conservative. It's sort yeah. of like, yeah, we are the ones that it's that <laughs> Disney. There are no other yeah. Disney. There are no other Disney. So if, you know, like if you're related to the Kennedys, you know, you it's, just well, go yeah. disappear into that's the right. world. But sure. I don't get to do that. And, and so you know, I lied a lot when people would ask if I was related. And once my dad was standing behind me and. He, he looked so much like Walt. Yeah. I, and somebody said, if, oh, are you related? And I was like, no. And he just dissolved in laughter standing right behind me. <laughs> well, but not <laughs> but not unlike the Kennedys, it doesn't always go well for Kennedys. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and, it's, you think it always goes well for Disney? No, that's what I'm saying. Is that like, <laughs> you just said like, you know, you, that Kennedys can go off and do other things. They can't right. really. That's, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they always turn up Kennedy somehow. <laughs> You know? Yeah, tossing the football while you're skiing. Yeah, but it doesn't. Was, were there tragedies within the family? No, in, no, nothing. In that nothing Kennedy esque <laughs> like that. We, we, no we, drugs or yeah. car accidents. <laughs> well, we have our share of drugs. Drugs sure. happen. Drugs yeah. happen to all of us. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, and I think if you talk about uh, drug and addiction and all that kind of thing in 
any family where there's resources, sure, um, you'll it's see there. that actually it's harder to get sober, much harder to get sober when you have money. When you have money, yeah, you know, it's 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 like it's so hard when you're abjectly poor and you have to go back to the same neighborhood with no support and all the rest. Right. Of it. And then it's so hard when you're like trapped in a family, can't really get out of it because you rely on it for your money. Yeah. Everybody's telling you you're brilliant, smart, and perfect, and yeah. you run the world and and you know, I I always thought it was so important that with Betty Ford when she went to the um, naval hospital before yeah. there was such a thing as Betty Ford, and they put her through the rehab program. The first thing they did was now scrub the toilet, and she was like, <laughs> "I'm the first lady. I'm not scrubbing any toilets." And and of course, immediately she got it. It was like, "Oh yeah, that's right. I use a toilet. I should that's be right. able to scrub it." That's right. <laughs> you know, and and that whole thing of like you're not too good to scrub the toilet. Right. I think is. Like one of the first and most important things about getting sober sure. is just being a regular member of the human race. Yeah, with yeah. Everybody worker else. among workers, <laughs> yeah, service exactly. first, and and um, wealthy, especially wealthy men, have a very hard time getting there. Yeah, you seem to be talking passionately about this as oh, if yeah. it's from experience. Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Are you sober? I'm. I'm not. I'm complicated. I'll okay. just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very Al-Anon, and uh, oh yeah, and um, I read Lois's book. We talked yeah, about that. Yeah, you read yeah. Lois's book? Yeah, it's it's like her little memoir. I can't uh, remember what it's called. Yeah. It's a fascinating book. It yeah. really is because I can picture all these nice ladies out in the kitchen uh-huh. drinking coffee while their men are over there, and somehow the it's all their problem, and yeah. it's all about them. And like you know, I can see how Al-Anon would come out of those. Well, those it's like, like someone that. told me a brilliant thing that really stuck with me. Yeah, I got a long time sober, and I've done my share of. Uh, you know, uh, Al-Anon work as well. But someone said to me, uh, you know, the difference between like something like ACOA mm-hmm. and Al-Anon is that, you know, Al-Anon was written for, for people who want to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, which yeah. is a really interesting distinction. It's a really interesting distinction. And like, you know, if it's your parents, you know. Yeah, right. You, you know, like, yeah, I guess the option is not to stay, but it's a pretty, that's a pretty nuclear option. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's just, it's framing that, the kind of detachment thing. You know? Yeah. But, but yeah. so, but you go to New York and you go to Yale mm-hmm. was so in, in terms of like how screwed up was your brain around? Because yeah. what year is that? I mean, the whole. 78. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so it's later. So how did you fare? Like, I mean, you're a little older than me, but not much, but we were not uh, really kind of that cognizant in the 60s when culture really started to shift mm-hmm. but did you have did you have any sense of what was going on with the company then like when there was you know actual you know, radical activism going on everywhere yeah. and that, disneyland yeah. is just sort of this little pocket i know of right because disney did this crazy thing where and one of the charges that they're anti-semitic is there they are in the late 60s mid 70s and they still haven't hired a jew yeah i mean like you're in the film on the business corporate, yeah and you don't. I mean, you had to be working hard not to hire Jewish yeah, people. So, yeah. so, so that's there, and that was in the political environment I was raised in too. It was so just nobody said, "Oh, Jews bad," and yeah. we work with Jewish people. But at the same time, it yeah. wasn't like you yeah. know there was it, it was sort of you know it's like a fog in the house. You know, sure, this but kind there, of I bet, ideology. But there were also those people within the business, and I imagine that was really the issue where they were like, you know, the Jews can't have everything. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, like, you, you know, know, Toluca Lake, the country club over there in uh-huh. Toluca Lake. Yeah. 
um, it was set up as sort of in reaction to the L.A. Country Club, uh-huh. which was didn't have Jews in it, right? Right, right. because they they didn't want Jews. Yeah. And so, um, but so Riverside was set up, and that was for movie people, and right. that was a way of saying, oh, yeah. Jews can come to the club. <laughs> so, Toluca Lake was okay. We want movie people, but no Jews. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was like <laughs> that was the Lakeside Country Club, it's, which is bizarre, right? So a little right wing enclave sort of formed in Toluca Lake. Okay, and so you had your Bing Crosby and your Bob Hope, and, yeah, yeah, and people like that. Yeah, and um, we actually had around that lake we had like Amelia Earhart and W. C. Fields. I mean, it was wow. crazy around that lake, but um, but really, in fact, that country club was is that where way- Amelia landed? Right, she's at the bottom of the lake. lake. (laughs) (laughs) I should have looked. (laughs) (laughs) The rumor is they had like these ducks on the lake. No, what am I saying? They had swans on the lake. And um, W.C. Fields apparently used to get just completely lit and come out with a shotgun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's quite a history. (laughs) But, but... You know, in the 60s, I mean, that was around the time where the Wonderful World Disney, Disney was on. When did your dad make the, the Falcon right. one? So so he made that in the 70s. Right. Um, my grandfather died. Let's say he must have made that in the 60s because my grandfather died in 1971. My dad stayed at the company until 78, so he kept doing that. And, and then he ended up leaving because he was really kind of at war and being treated, he felt really badly. So he went off on his own and started investing money and he made his own documentary and doing other things. Uh-huh. And who, what um, was but he his... stayed on the board. Okay. And what was his position at the company when he left? Uh, he was, I think, head of 16 millimeter production. Oh, okay. And left. who was running the place? And it was Ron Miller, our, our cousin's husband. And, oh, he did. Um, yeah. And the folks that sort of supported Ron Miller. So you, you, you go to Yale, you get your PhD, and then, you know, what is your life? Um, I'm teaching a little bit, but by then I've had, yeah. And then by then I've had started having children. So I just sort of like hunkered down over my children and did a lot of not for profit work. Yeah. Okay. So that was where my political life was. It started there. Yeah. And what was all of it? Do you find uh, a reaction to? Yes. (laughs) You don't have to finish that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I definitely did the predictable thing where if you say right, I'll say left. If you say up, sure. I'll say down. I did that through my twenties and into my thirties. But by the time I got into my thirties and I had started working like with these small women's did you, foundations, did you ever say like I don't want the money? No, <laughs> I, I I did say yeah. I shouldn't want the money. Right, right. <laughs> but but I had to tell myself the truth. That, you know, honestly, it's a little bit of a hot house flower problem. Uh-huh. You don't know for sure you can you can swim unless. You know what I mean? And so I came right up to the edge of giving it all away more than once. Yeah. And then chickened out. Yeah. And I'm I you know, I hate that about myself. I probably should have. But at the same time, there was so much I could see that I could do that seemed good. Well that, yeah, that seemed to be the the right shift. Like, you know, I, I imagine like, you know, disinheriting yourself or, yeah. or, or, or dumping your stock options. You know, would would be the natural kind of immature rebellion, right? Right. Right. To follow through with, there or, are great people who do that and have done it. And um, um, Chuck Collins from the Hormel family did yeah. that, and is a really great advocate for inequality. I mean, against inequality, and and uh, he runs inequality.org. He's, he's from really Hormel great. Meat. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he and he just said no. 
I don't yeah. want it. And has lived happily ever after. Is he a vegetarian? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't asked. If it was similar to your situation, you would think he yeah. would be an animal rights activist. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. But like, but but were you at, at 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 different times in your life among these American billionaire family, the billionaire class? I I have um I have known those folks, and yeah. and among them, like either because they were there where I went to school. Yeah. Or once I started getting active in um, in giving money away, I would yeah. meet the daughters of families like this. Sure, and daughters are different. Yeah, um, it's a different thing to be a woman in a family like that. But you, but you found people you related to. Yeah, I would sure. imagine. I mean, that saved me. If I hadn't, I think I would have like lost who? my mind. Well, you know, not going to name names, but oh. um, <laughs> there are people from pretty prominent families who, like uh, women. It's, so you're not expected to take over, you know, like they look at you and go, oh, look, an extra, mm. you know. And, and so th- there's a mercy in that, right? Because it's like, oh, nobody expects anything of me, so I can kind of do what I want. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little harder on the men because it's a little bit like this toadstool they grow up under. Oh, God, I've got to do that, and I've got to do it better. They've got like, to e- e- sort of uh, uh, e- e- evolve into a leader of some kind. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. what if that's not what you were going to be? Um, then you become a drug addict or a it, rock yeah, musician. A lot of people, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people choose that path or or fall into that path. And so for me, there was a little bit of a freedom in it. And so I did a lot of like um, I went onto boards and helped raise money, and I figured out grant making and philanthropy and foundations. This and is stuff why you're like raising that. your kids. And what's your yeah, husband exactly. do? Exactly, he's a writer. Still, you still with him? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, that's pretty yeah. good. I know, amazing. From nineteen. 19- <laughs> 79. Wow. That's crazy, yeah, right? Good for you, yeah. But there's a little uh, four-year awfulness oh, yeah. in the middle there. You've got to have your awfulness. <laughs> <laughs> Things got bad for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and came back around. We found it. We found our way back. But uh, And we have four kids, and uh, they're spectacular. Yeah. And I, I chalk a lot of that up to being in New York where, I mean, if we'd been here, there would have been like, oh, there's they're opening a ride down at the park, or oh, there's a new movie. And like the temptation to go and do that and stand in the front. And so your siblings and, grew up with that. They had um, kids and it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, we can yeah. go to Disneyland. Well, I mean, like they don't do it as much right. as all that, yeah. you know. Um, but they, yeah, there's that. Do I you didn't get spe- want my kids special cards that. and stuff? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then there's yeah. things like private airplanes, which are, yeah. I you know, I came to believe after using them for a while, um, kind of bad for you. Yeah. And um, so for I your did, mind. Yeah. They're 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 bad for your spirit. They're they're the Disney owned airplane. Um, that no, it's my just... father's owned airplane. He oh, has okay. seven thirty seven. Wow, that's I a mean, big plane. I mean, can you plane. fucking imagine? I know. Like, there and there was one time when I was flying home because I needed to get home, and I was there at a meeting with the family and the business and everything. Yeah. And uh, I'm the only person on a 737 with a queen-size bed <laughs> that has a giant seatbelt, like that the FAA requires you put this giant seatbelt on the queen-size bed. <laughs> yeah. And the, people bringing me things, you know, and I have really low-brow tastes. I want Diet Coke and French onion dip yeah, and Lay's yeah, potato yeah. chips. Yeah. And it just all in Waterford Crystal and the rest of it, and and that was the trip where I thought, oh, I just no. How old were you? No, I was in my thirties. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to tell you I was eighteen and I just had so much yeah. principle. It took me a while to get that much principle. Yeah. Um, yeah. It takes a while. It's like making your way out of the forest. You know, you have to part this. You know curtain of vines and go through it and it's scary and to figure out like you know how i i imagine that there's a guilt-driven element of 
philanthropy and, mm-hmm, and, act, mm-hmm. and activism and, and that you know at some point if that's what you're doing you realize that it's it's reaction based yes. so to actually walk the walk and own mm-hmm. yourself in in that in yeah. activism uh and that's a different thing yeah it, ta- it takes a lot of time i i think guilt is a much maligned um state of mind i don't I don't actually think it's as horrible as all that. It is reactive. And no, you don't no, I mean, I think it, it drives a, a, a tremendous amount. Without exactly. guilt, there'd be no charity. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, not everybody's that service-oriented um, or Christian about right. things. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, like, what you want to do is move past the reaction to something like justice, you know, and, and charity is not justice. Yeah. This is not No, justice. then you get into a more Jewish element of, uh, <laughs> of the old school thinking where, yeah. you know, to, to you know, to, you truly have concern for those in need and, exactly. and, and to sort of bring the underclass up to right, uh, right, where, right. yeah, I... I yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's 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 a hell of a life in terms of trying to make that because it'd be so not easy mentally or emotionally or spiritually to just live your rich life. Well, well, rich people, the people doing most of the charity and philanthropy yeah. in the world, are really poorly uh, prepared for genuine justice yeah. um, by just being rich. Well, because they hire people to actually do the charity. Yes, well, there's that. But also, philanthropy consultants, like, I imagine. You're, you're not taught to listen to people. Mm. You're not taught to shut up and just hear somebody else's point of view and think that. What about empathy? That empathy it gets a bit of a workout when you have money because you can separate yourself from people. You can look at from a distance and you can rationalize you for, and you forget yeah. what it what it hurts like. Like, I, or what if is you the ever last knew. rich person you knew who had to stand in line much longer than they really wanted to stand in line? That's actually a powerful, important human experience, right? Standing in line. Standing in line is everybody has equal importance in this line. And I got here 27th. So I'm going to be the 27th person regardless of how important I think I am. That is fucking huge. Yeah, I get frustrated. Like, you know, like I've earned some money over time. And now that I have a little money, I do always, you know, generally when I'm in a line, think like, is there any way I can avoid this line? isn't there... Isn't there a private Is there a guy way? I can call? <laughs> exactly, and then like so if, if you're you grow immersed, up with that, if you grow up and you're yeah. immersed in that, it's really hard not to wonder like, isn't there a private entrance? Sure. Yeah, should yeah. I go around the side? And or, there is. Should I, yeah, for there you. almost always is. Uh. Yeah, there almost always is, and that's why I hate private airplanes more than anything. So, so that was your real kind of a white light moment, the airplane. Uh, well, you know what? There's no epiphany big enough to get you to humanity mm. you know and and like because this is it's like being being raised with all these resources mm. makes you different yeah and f scott fitzgerald say famously said the rich are different not because they're born different but because they become different because their circumstances are so changed just by money because this is a highly classified society well, yeah you the one percent when you really think about now with the disparity and 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 how it's pictured is like because i know now I, I know peers of mine who were, were fucking comics who yeah. make a hundred million dollars, yeah, exactly. right? So, so all of a sudden, you know, they they enter that world. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, there's more people in that world now. Yeah, it yeah. seems. I mean, there's obviously the richie richest of the rich, yeah. but there is a class of people yeah. within. The, I think the one percent is probably three percent now. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is that actually it's still only 1% and less than 1% really. Um, it's just that um, there are more famous people in it okay. because of the way media pays. 
Um, okay. And yeah. So that, that that's sense. the thing. And so you've heard of more of them. Right. Um, but, but I guess what I'm saying is that that rarefied life is yeah. it, they can only hang out with each other yeah. and they can't, you know, it's, yeah. you can no longer, you don't function. You're not part of the, the, the real world, so to speak. Yeah. The, the first lesson when you get to college is you, you can't talk about your life when everybody else is talking about their lives mm. um, because they're like, oh my God, you know, I don't have enough money to pay for the books yeah. this year. And like everybody's, that's what people get together and talk about when right. you're in college. And is you're unspoken like, rule? Y- y- yeah. Yeah. Well, if the first time it's spoken, you never forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so you know to shut up because, and this is why um, a lot of people like me go, they dress like shit. You know, yeah. I would take a cab and get out 10 blocks before where I was going. Oh, right. You know, and they so you live yeah. in a hovel and you kind of pretend you sort of you're a tourist in it. But really. you know. But you know, there's, if, as long as you know there's a there's a safety button that you could push sure. and leave that reality, then you're not in that reality. Right. Really. But but there, I think it, there is uh, it's not totally without earnestness in terms Very. of like you, you want to have that experience, but you can't have it genuinely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you prefer your kid to have that ingenuine experience sure. I, and, and you, you prefer them to want that experience. God knows. Yeah. Then then, you know, yeah. we've also seen kids respond really differently. Um, and they learn a lot. You know, my yeah. daughter worked for a while at a, um, a strip club in New Orleans on Bourbon Street selling, uh-huh. um, you know, these drinks called hand grenades uh-huh. out onto the sidewalk. Yeah. And, you know, she got her experience. <laughs> and how did you? Was that her rebellion? That's of interesting. course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah, that's funny. You went to Yale to rebel and she's yeah. out in Bourbon she's, Street yes. handing out giant drinks. <laughs> we all find our ways. Yeah. And she's uh, she came back around. She's well, I wouldn't she say back have, around, she, she, but she has grown into a yeah. spectacular human doing uh, her own okay. thing. She has a book coming out next year. Oh, about what? Yeah. About her life. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. She's a very interesting kid. Yeah. Uh, how old is she? I'll send you the book. Okay. Um, she is, well, she's 31. I call her kid. She's yeah. 31. What's the book about? It's it's like a series of personal essays about oh. identity. Oh, okay. And being a, Di- being a Di- knowing you're a Disney, she doesn't have it as last name, but yeah. knowing you're a Disney. Yeah. And, and, and people knowing you're a Disney and like, where do you find yourself and all that? Huh. And, and how do you situate yourself? A, a lot of the things I struggle with, how do you situate yourself relative to what you know to be a really, really checkered history yeah. uh, around race and class and yeah. the rest of it? And like, what, where, yeah. where am I in all this? Well, that's it. Well, so you were doing nonprofit work, but when did you step into the media uh, part of it to, into film? I mean, and what, what was really your, your, uh, um, your evolution through uh, yeah. nonprofit into actual right. activism. Right. Well, my, first of all, I you know I just really wanted to be with actual people. So, yeah. um, I started working with this thing called the New York Women's Foundation, which just was just freaking genius mm. because we were cross class, and so you were working peer to peer yeah. with people that ultimately you would never know right. otherwise. And I'd go out to programs and I'd meet the people who were doing the work yeah. of just gluing the city together, especially yeah. in the 80s when it was not glued together very well. And like they tended to be women. Almost always they tended to be women. Over and over again, I met these amazing women who, you know, with so much less than I ever had, you know, were doing miraculous things. So yeah. I, I developed a belief system about how it works. Yeah. And so years later, I didn't want to do media. I didn't want to do film. It felt like a trap door I didn't want to step on. Yeah. Um, but I was in Liberia years later because as things developed, you know, further and further afield. Yeah. And in 2006, I went to Liberia and I heard this remarkable story 
about what the women had done there. And like all that time, having known the kind of women who do this kind of thing, yeah. I knew it was true, even though nobody had reported on it. Yeah. And basically the Muslim and the Christian women had gotten together across their lines. They had um, formed a peace movement nonviolently. Yeah. And they forced peace talks. They had a sex strike part this part right. of it and um and they um surrounded the peace talks that eventually happened when they fell apart and they locked arms and they held everybody in the building hostage and you know they forced a peace agreement that's an amazing thing no newspaper wrote about it yeah. and, and i came home furious because i know enough about women's history yeah. to know we fucking disappear every yeah. fucking time the water closes over our heads as we sink yeah and it's like we were never there and yeah. i was like damn it no and that was the first film i ever made it was like th there's no way pray the devil back to hell yeah 2008 yeah. so watch it please watch it okay and, that, and you produce you. that i produce it but but it was the director and i made the film together yeah yeah yeah, yeah and it was my first experience and like I remember flying over there with a crew to shoot, and I was so nervous. I thought, what am I doing? Maybe I imagine this. Like, yeah. Who do I think I am? That sentence goes through my head a lot. Yeah. And I swear to God, my foot hit the tarmac in Monrovia, and I thought, well, I know exactly how to do this job. Yeah. I, I knew it. Yeah. I mean, to the tips of my toes, and like I have not looked back since then. <laughs> Good. And then the next movie was the one we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. The, well, uh, actually, no, because uh, Pray the Devil Back to Hell turned into a series for PBS called okay. Women, War, and Peace. And we made five films in five different settings about how war plays out differently in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, in relation to for women? women. Oh, okay. And the theory was basically all war films go with John Wayne. The camera is in John Wayne's head. Mm. And uh, what if you put the camera in a woman's head, how would it feel and look different? And huh. it, it is a very different phenomenon if you look at it through a woman's eyes. Huh. Are you are you in any way engaged with this Ukrainian conflict? Oh, yeah. So the woman who, in Pray the Devil Back to Hell went on yeah. to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011. So yeah. awesome. Yeah. And um, she's been engaged with the women in, in Ukraine. So I'm hearing a lot from her. And she's she and the rest of the women who've won Nobel Peace Prizes have been working with the Ukrainian women a lot. They're very interested. Yeah. Well, um, the, you know, most of the tram drivers are women, yeah. and they have never stopped stopped driving in spite huh. of everything. And they're, I don't know, it's something like twenty percent, which is the highest percentage in combat history of women in combat. It's it's a very interesting oh, news is. story. It's wow. very different from what we were talking about back in huh. twenty eleven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you, so this has been sort of the through line was primarily women's yeah. issues initially. That's how I got started. And to tell you the truth, the armor of light was a little bit of a women's. Sure, it sounds made like it. from a women's point of view in the sense that I know conservative women. I was raised by Phyllis Schlafly, basically, yeah. and and um, conservative women hate women. They really hate women. They yeah. don't trust them. They don't want to talk. I thought you can, if you could move conservative women to think differently about guns, how would they move their families yeah. to behave differently about on the issue, and how right. would they vote differently? So that was the thesis. Uh -huh. And I thought I need a man to talk to them yeah. because they won't listen to a woman. <laughs> Right. So yeah. you got that guy. Yeah. 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 And he seemed like the right yeah. guy. He once was you, the right, he, once you turned him around. He's he's more of the right guy now than he was then. I mean, he's he's like basically completely switched. I overshot, way overshot with him. Yeah. <laughs> he's writing essays about how we shouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade and What's his name? That. His name is Rob Schenk. Huh. And he's a really interesting guy. Chabon. But you you really turned him around, huh? I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, I thought that's that's the intent. That was it, like you got the, one. Truth be told, at the very very beginning, that was my fantasy. Yeah, you know, turn him around. But then I thought, honestly, like we could all use a little bit of this. Who do I think I am? 
you know, he's yeah. a grown man. Yeah. He's responsible for his moral imagination. I, and I, why do I think mine is any better than his? Sure. Let's just like be. And like, let's offer each other love and friendship and mm. see what happens. Yeah. And that's literally how that happened. Yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I did it. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, what, what, why was this the time? Because it's interesting in the, in this new film, uh, which I watched, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, that, you know, you lay out, you know, Disney and your relationship with Disney, you know, as a Disney. And we've talked about it fairly thoroughly here. But that's not necessarily that's just uh, to sort of define who you are coming into this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is about wage disparity and, yeah. and, and labor and, and uh, unfair pay and practice. Yeah. Uh, and I guess by by sort of digging in with the Disney thing and focusing on Disney, you can talk to a, a much broader issue. Now, as you said, with the uh, the company in the early 80s after your father left um and your grandfather and they were all dead and this is your your cousin's husband that corporate culture started to shift and i think you do a good job in in showing that you know that yeah. there was this kind of almost evangelical uh idea around mm-hmm. free market yeah uh that that became infused in the culture yeah across yeah. the board and yeah. and we're really paying for that now in a way because oh. like you know that's evolved once it didn't work out for enough you know, people that they couldn't accept that they may have been wrong about free market uh, yeah. capitalism. So now we've shifted in, an, into a, a sort of severely fascist grievance yes. that's misdirected. That's exactly that's exactly how I see it, too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, we one of the things that's hard to grasp is that that there was a plan. You know, and then people made this happen. Yeah. I mean, that's so we refer to the the Powell memo. The Powell the Powell memo is something I was obsessed with. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was at Air America, you know, because right. no one knew about it. Yeah. And this was really something that it, this defines, you know, Republicanism in a way. Yeah. Uh, conservative uh, economics, but but really, what it was like is that they felt so threatened by the '60s that they there was a moment yeah. there where they're like, you know, this could tip. Yeah. And capitalism could lose to socialism. Exactly. And we can never let that happen. Yes. Ever. Exactly. That was what Powell, the Powell memo yeah. was about. Yeah. And, and he sent it out to the Chamber of Commerces. And right. that was that. Exactly. Exactly. So and and became a Supreme Court justice, not not incidentally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I was raised in a very conservative household. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, my mother's side of the family was more conservative than my father's side. So these were people who truly, truly, truly believed in this free market idea. Yeah. But partly it was um, moral cover that this idea that, well, free markets do the best and everybody does as well as can be expected in any society under a free market. So we should really throw all in. But the other thing was the wrong people were trying to run the show. You know, and, Always. And, and, How is that yeah, not going to happen? It, and also, like, you know, what's weird is about the free market idea crashing is now we just have a nation of fucking grifters yeah. who believe that, you know, by any means necessary, yeah. you get away with it. Ex- oh, God, yes. Yeah, that's why I call it the assholification of America. <laughs> yeah. That's like, it's because, like, I was there in 1987 when Gordon Gecko said greed is good. Yeah. And he's the villain of the movie. And I saw people in the theater go bananas applauding him. And that was Milton Friedman's whole trip. Yeah, well, and that came from Ayn Rand. And right. Milton Friedman loved Ayn Rand. Yeah, and yeah. by the way, so did Alan Greenspan. 
who right. who yeah. was a, a little acolyte. What about Leo Strauss? Kid. Leo yes. Strauss at the Chicago Strauss School, right? And, and, and others, yeah. Hayek and, and yeah, yeah. Von Mies and yeah. the rest of them. There was a whole set. Of, and by the way, right when people are once again reading Von Mies and Hayek and those, and so they're once again picking up those books and talking them because they want them a, the a radio. they want a, a, a new intellectual class yeah. around these philosophical ideas right. that have caused this cancer. Right, and <laughs> and. And the and the idea actually what I meant when I said the wrong people were running the show yeah. was there is an idea among people who are wealthy and powerful that if you're not wealthy and powerful it's because you're fucking idiots. That's right. Right. And so why would Lee let you run the country? Democracy sucks. I mean I have had that said to me by relatives who are free market capitalist purists who said. Like, d- democracy is kind of a bad idea. But it becomes very clear in that congressional, when you spoke to Congress, or that what was that panel exactly? Yeah, that what was, was a, it? A finance committee panel. A finance committee panel, and that congressman from... Uh, from Indiana. The one who said, you know, you, this is socialism. Yeah. Is that, you know, that whole idea, it, it's become so clear now that there right. are pawns of corporate interests. Yeah, it's so clear. So it's it's not even a philosophical notion. It's a, right. it's just that, that most politicians are, are craven hacks who are, who are, who are easily sold yeah. out. I mean, bought. they're functioning in a very broken system. And basically now all they have is like a set of clubs, you know, uh-huh. and like, like I'll use the socialism club on this lady and I'll use the Marxism yeah, club on Yeah, because I'm, I'm owned. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and they have not a very, I would say most of them, not a very well-developed intellectual s- no, system. Uh, yeah. And, and they're not thinking about the word socialism as having anything more than a single, it's like a, a bucket, you know, of a word. And oh, no, so they I throw know, everything into yeah, that and, one and, bucket. And, and the, the, we have functioning socialism within mm-hmm. the bureaucracy of this country that most of these older people, right. whether, whether it's right. Medicare or Social Security, right. that, right. you, you right. know, they all... Well, uh, and we have corporate socialism. We talk sure. about that in the film a yeah. little bit, too. I mean, we don't even scratch the surface on Anaheim and its relationship to the Walt Disney Company because, well, well, yeah, that, yeah. you know, but a $500 million bond... Yeah. In, in 1996 that they are still paying off and there is a law that says that any surplus in the government's budget yeah. has to go to pay that bond down. They're not allowed to use the surplus on the fire department or the education department or anything else. It must pay that bond down. So Disney owns the town. Yeah. Yeah. So so people of Anaheim took that and they pay a dollar a year and yet they own for the, the par- place? For the parking structure. And, and when the bond is finished and it's paid down, Disney owns it. Yeah. What, how, um, what deal on earth would you ever sign that favored the other side that egregiously? You would never. Well, they and sold them on the tourists. They sold them on the economic benefit. Except they also pass a law saying we indemnify you against any future tax on uh, admission. Uh. So, like, where's the benefit to Anaheim? But this was not your grandfather's Disney. No, I I will say he was a very aggressive guy around Florida because it, like they they bought that land in Anaheim they built the park there and then psh, immediately there was all this stuff around it and they got yeah. limited in square footage and the and Anaheim is a as a business proposition is a square footage problem yeah how do you maximize revenues out of that yeah very limited thing so they bought you know they still only use like 40 percent of the land in Orlando that they bought they bought so much land there oh yeah and then but they went to the government. Have, don't they have like a, a housing community there now? Exactly. So they, so they went to the government and said, uh, give us everything we want, please. We want our own fire department, our own police department, our own water and sanitation, everything. So it's almost like Andorra there. It's like a state within a state. 
um, because of how much the government was just happy to hand them over anything. Well, wasn't there a conflict recently with Reedy Little Creek. De- with yeah. DeSantis? What was yeah. that about again? So Reedy Creek is what it's called, this special status yeah. that Disney has. Yeah. It supplies its own <laughs> what's really interesting about it. And all these tax, and everybody assumes it benefits Disney, but um, actually as it's worked out, it's saved Orlando a lot of money in having to police and send fire department to uh-huh. Disney. And it wound up benefiting Orlando <laughs> to the tune of something like a billion dollars a year. Uh-huh. Um, I I sort of think a company shouldn't have that kind of autonomy. Yeah. I mean, they have their own police department. Yeah. It, it just seems like a corporate police department. That yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make me comfortable. So I think we should probably have a conversation about how appropriate Reedy Creek is. And that was completely my grandfather's invention. Yeah. Um, but DeSantis, I think, acted really rashly and said, let's just take it away. Yeah. yeah. And didn't think it through and didn't really understand. Yeah. Orlando it was, was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. shit is going on quietly yeah. because, like, you see a news story and it's up here yeah. and then boom, it disappears from view. That's a lot. Well, of yeah, publicists. he got, he got, sure. He got <laughs> yeah. his talking point and it's probably, you know, Orlando, you know, pushed back and said, look, no, you know. I, I'm sure Disney went with hat in hand and yeah. said, what can we do to make you happy? Mr. DeSantis. Oh, really? Please tell us yeah. how to make you happy. No, I'm sure Disney ate shit. Oh yeah. For them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but get all this getting to the point that, you know, you focus on specifically what they call the, the cast members of, of Disney. And these are people, you know, on the janitorial staff. Yeah. These are people, you know, who, who uh, you know, set the park up mm-hmm. overnight. They're, they're people that work in all different positions in the park who are, are, who are really, you know, being underpaid, do not have access to health care, are, are not unlike many people in, in these positions in, in corporate structures and, or in you know there's no union that that functions properly you know exactly. within it and so th- you made it personal by making it Disney but the, those stories were all there right exactly I mean the thing is I made it personal because it, it is personal because these are persons right these are all sure. people living lives human beings and like we leave that out of the equation when we have these conversations but it was interesting that you know it was a, 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 the way to frame it you know with your own sort of moral compass and then yeah. you know trying to reach out to uh to what's it Iger mm-hmm. uh, who's no longer there so the Jews eventually got Disney yes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> a couple of Jews yeah <laughs> yeah uh but but it, it, because you have no you don't sit on the board you're not you, you know you just are a you know uh, what 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 is it you're a stockholder I'm a no? stockholder yeah. no, no I don't even really have as many shares as most people do. yeah but uh but you just reached out as a person yes exactly with who, the name Disney yes who happened to have Bob's email <laughs> yeah <laughs> like right. the magic power yeah um that I didn't ask for so so yeah basically I, I I'll tell you I witnessed it. I witnessed the change happen in front of my eyes because I, as much as my grandfather was super conservative and anti-union and the rest of it, he was like this decent man. He was so warm. He was Mm. so genuine. And so when I would walk into the park That's across the board? That's not a granddaughter uh, No, no, I I actually, I have tested this. (laughs) And I know people who do it still who will say the same thing. It's not just an imaginary thing. And, um... I would walk into the park with him and like we would come in through the cast member entrance and people would come up to him and call him Roy and he would remember their names and he would ask about their families. I mean, like it was really community amazing and, that yeah, way. Yeah. And and he did seem to believe, as far as I can tell, that, you know, you, what, what the thing is with capitalism when it's working well is people are making money and having lives. 
that was a, that was part of one of his concerns as a person. That was how the company. middle class was invented. Exactly. Yeah. So it was like you know you pay them enough, they can buy a house. There were all these government subsidies helping them do all these things, but nevertheless, it mattered to him that people could raise their children and get health care and all the rest of that. And and you know I tell the story all the time because it's really important to me. It says something so much about the difference of the place we're in now. He used to pick up garbage when he would walk into the park. Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of a famous thing at Disney. It's like one of the first things you learn is you pick up garbage. I don't care if you're a manager or whatever. Yeah. And I asked him about it. And he said, I want people to know nobody's too good to pick up a piece of garbage. Yeah. No matter who he is. Yeah. And, and that, if you think about contemporary CEO and how they roll and how they walk into spaces and how they how they see themselves yeah. and how we look at them when we put them on magazine covers yeah. and so forth. It's just inconceivable that they would bend over and pick up a piece of garbage. Mm. And so in some ways we have we have taken this class of people and we've given them like supernatural status, mm. which is not who they are and not what they have. And in handing them over this idea that they have such special skills that no one could possibly do their job, they can't be replaced. That's how we justify giving them these redunculous paydays. Yeah. And it's like, I have no problem with a person having $65 million. I really don't. Yeah. But like at the same company, they can't put food on the table. That doesn't feel weird. On the back of people who are living in tents yeah. and, and have no exactly. sort of safety net at all. And I have, and I have in the business press, I have one set of people who call me and ask me to talk about CEO pay and a totally different set of people who call me and ask me to talk about the pay for the workers. Why are those different people? Because we're not seeing them as working at the same enterprise, yeah. and that's a problem. Yep, and and it's just and the fact that you know Iger pulled out right before the pandemic and and got his big bucks, his sixty five million parachute, primarily because yeah. of the negotiating the Fox deal, I imagine. Yeah, right. And he became a billionaire during the pandemic. Yeah, from from the money he'd accrued, the all of the different paydays he'd had over the years. That's. Partly because Disney prices went crazy, but also, why did Disney prices go crazy? Nobody could get into the park. It's just not rational. Not, like, we keep being told that the stock why market is rational, crazy? and it's yeah. not. Because Disney um, Plus was doing so well. Mm. Um, and so everybody was like, oh, great, streaming is now. So they're being, at home. Yeah, know. everyone's at home watching yeah. and signing up, and no one's going to the park. And meanwhile, you've got all the people that worked yeah. at the park furloughed, yeah. bordering on yeah. homeless, if not homeless. Yeah. With families, yeah, on the street, yeah, with no, no one. It, it, it was interesting because you did talk to a woman who'd worked there for forty some odd mm -hmm, years, and, mm -hmm. and that yeah. she saw the arc of she of, saw a change. Yeah, well, let's be clear that they they said we're going to furlough you, and you go ahead and you sign up for unemployment. But in the background, every single day of our lives up until this point, we've been fighting not to have to pay taxes to the state that's now going to have to pay you unemployment. Like, think about that. Like, we have been trying to disable and 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 um, deconstruct and, and wither the state away as active lobbyists. But the second that, that it's, there's trouble, it was like, oh, the state will pay for that. Yeah. I mean... It's it it tells you that that the only ideology really actually is the self, and and unfortunately, the corporation has a self, which is this collected um, brain yeah. of of people at the top, and they are um, they share a set of ideologies that are incredibly poisonous. Yeah, and and whereas the as somebody with the you know, a, a sense of that the immorality of that. 
that like it seems such a simple thing. It's like you have all this fucking money. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do with yeah. all this money? Why can't you just take care of this group of people? Well, but here's the thing. They don't have a lot of money lying around. Uh. So the, one of the most profitable years in history going into the pandemic, the, in the in the eight years up to the pandemic, they had spent, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it's over $8 billion of free cash flow on share buybacks. Share buybacks. Yeah. And, and if you think about, so a share buyback was illegal in the early 1980s, yeah. and it was considered unethical for many, many years. But they're standard now. And basically, the, the company looks at its share price. It has a lot of cash lying around. It says, well, let's just buy shares. We don't care if the price is high. Like, what's rational to do with money in a company? It, you know, wait till the share price drops if you're going to, like, don't pay yeah, top dollar yeah. for it. But nevertheless, they buy their shares. That pumps the price up, which offers value to the shareholders. And so, theoretically, you're rewarding it's your shareholders, your owners, yeah. right? But the people you're really rewarding are your managers who are primarily compensated in shares at yeah. that low value. Yeah. So, they get pumped up also. So, they nobody... Just the same as you've got this on-time inventory philosophy that really killed us during the pandemic. This, like, I don't want free cash flow sitting around on my books attitude left them totally ill-prepared for the pandemic. So immediately, Disney had to start borrowing money. Like, you would think a profitable company would not need to dip into borrowed money. But, of course, like, it's anathema to have cash sitting around, yeah. even for an emergency. So, they, that, like, it was a lot of business practices contribute to, contributed to the way our workers were screwed during the pandemic. And not just the fact that they were so low pay, paid for so long that there were articles right before the pandemic. I don't know if you remember them about how nobody could afford a $400 emergency if it came up. Yeah. There were a whole series of articles right yeah. before the pandemic. Sure enough, they had a big emergency, more than $400, and they had to go right out to the food banks. There was no padding for anybody. Yeah. It's it's. It's awful because like there, you would have to rebuild. Uh, you have to create an infrastructure to actually take care of people, and yes. they just don't give a fuck. Yes, and we, we had an infrastructure at one time that was imperfect. Yeah. Um. But but it was like um. It was like a hedge we stopped. Or watering. God forbid you give them stock options. Yeah. Well, you know, God forbid. And if you have free cash flow, right? If you have you know four hundred million extra dollars just lying around as a result of how profitable you are, yeah. And you think it should go to people who deserve it. Why are your employees who produce much of that value not considered as important as your shareholders when you return that value to the people who deserve it? But so where is where's that? Yeah. And if year after year after year you're profitable, why are their wages not raised? And why are they dying in their cars? Yeah, and they are dying in their cars. When the person who died in her car that really s just killed everybody was um, she had played Winnie the Pooh six days a week for eight years. And then one day she just didn't show up and nobody knew where she was and nobody could find her. Was she, she living, was living in, in her car? That's terrible. Yeah. Is that, was that in the movie? No. I mean, we couldn't, there's only so much you can shove in a movie and like we shoved that movie so full of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Really. Um, and, uh, oh, that story kills me. It's terrible. Yeah. And so it's, it, unfortunately, you know, we're, really sat with me and, and I've noticed it before is this sort of you know when you do have the, the union strike in front of the park mm -hmm. that you have you know families walking into the park with dismissive mm -hmm. looks mm -hmm. you, you know like that there's this natural aversion mm -hmm. to you, you know the the 
to activism mm-hmm. and to and to wanting to putting voice to a very you know vulnerable and angry mm-hmm. reality yeah that you know people who, who who might just be convinced because of their credit that they were at a different class than that right. are yeah. looking down at these people as they enter the park that that tone of in, in engagement always kills me. You know, at least half of those people, maybe forty years ago, wouldn't have dared to cross picket line. Yeah, wouldn't have dreamed of it. Yeah, and and so that Powell memo to go back to yeah. that Powell memo is yeah. really important because he it was a given in the Powell memo that we should obliterate the union movement that it should be destroyed and and certainly that's the first thing Reagan got to work on. Yeah, in the nineteen eighties, but but what he was focused on was how do we make people hate unions. Let's go into the schools and retrain people in how to think about unions, not just not just business schools, yeah. but high schools and colleges. Let's write books. Let's have our own um, academic and also um, let's papers. let's bl- let's blame the mob. Yeah, exactly. So there was a massive social campaign against movements, and I still, even after that film, have to talk to people about why unions aren't bad. Yeah. Um. And and unions have gotten obliterated. I mean, they are barely functioning and and they are working as hard as they can and they're brilliant people in them but they don't have enough money and they don't have enough time and they don't have enough staff they need much more support and i guess say you know I, not, ha, coming from a place where i don't know anything i think there was a period in the 60s and 70s where they were yeah a victim of bad leadership and 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 payoffs yeah. and stuff yeah no Some question yeah. no question i mean that was but the, the idea of it right yeah. the idea of the union in in its intent you know, it was really about like, hey, you know what? You you can't have kids working all night long with no food, yes. making shoes yes. or whatever. Thank you, union movement, for yeah. a weekend, right? And an eight day work day, yes. And child Unions. labor laws, exactly. Hmm. So, um, yeah, no, there are some brilliant people in the union movement who are who are really trying to kind of pick up the pieces from, and you see the way the teachers union you know, is so wildly controversial. But all a union is, is a recognition that um, workers, if they can't bargain collectively, they're fucked. Yeah. You know, and and, the, and so what we're being asked right now, especially as we move more and more to a gig economy, is we're being asked to trust the 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 CEO class to take care of, how paternalistic is that? Yeah. Workers. And um, no, um, that, that workers have rights. Right, or else to just <laughs> trust that workers will take care of themselves. Yeah, That exactly. there's a selfishness involved uh, to to our perception. Right, right. That, it, you know, through this weird kind of like, you know, pick you know cherry pick your reality yeah business and 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 at the heart of the anti-union kind of campaign was uh. stop thinking that we rely on each other this is not how society works each of us is one little blade of grass sticking straight up totally unconnected yeah, to one little fuck else. you finger exactly <laughs> that's a beautiful lawn yeah, image i have yeah. in my in my mind now and like and so when milton friedman says um society runs on individuals pursuing their self-interest mm. i i find that to be the most offensive because he says it as though as though this is all obvious that mm. that like this is just a thing you say the sky is blue and which is really like, not how the species works like exactly and like have you have you been at birth mm. <laughs> like have you seen how that works yeah. you come out of a person yeah. and there's all these people there helping that happen mm. and then holding that person so the other person can get better and then you know what's it called a family we interrelate it's a real problem when you know when intellectuals who who 
their job is to think provocative things mm-hmm. and philosophical ideas to promote debate within the within academia, you know, kind of get released into the real world. Exactly. And that's what happened with Milton Friedman. Sure. It's happening again with worse people, with yeah, uh, yeah. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And, you, you, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's like there's definitely people that's like they're supposed to be in academia. Yeah. This yeah. is supposed to provoke thought yeah. and debate. It's not supposed to be yeah. practical, applied. Have you ever met people who, um, who are trying to get sober, but they're just too smart to get sober? Sure. Because um, they just they talk so much sense. They don't know how to talk sense. Well, they, they refuse I, to accept the idea of powerlessness. Well, yeah. Yeah. But there's also the person who can just talk and talk and talk yeah. and talk and talk. Right. Because, like, you don't have to connect it with anything human. Right. And I have met so many academics like that. Right. That's how you thrive in academia. That's right. But and they, and so then you pull him out of academia and you say, oh, construct a program. He's the leader. Yeah. And Milton Friedman is so much worse news than even we make him in the film. Because if you've read The Shock Doctrine, yeah. Melanie, Ma- I'm sorry, Naomi, Naomi Klein. Klein's yeah. amazing. That's an amazing book. Yeah. Read that fucking book. It'll yeah. make you want to kill Milton Friedman, just dig him up and bury him again because... He, you know, he was talking to Pinochet in advance of the coup, planning his flight down there with all his Chicago folks with a they, whole they set made, of laws they, they were going to pass right. within months. It was the it was the Chicago schools, you know, global experiment on, yeah. you know, how to, you know, uh, kind of aggressively free market everything. Yeah, exactly. And it, so yeah. in it, what has happened since the doc? I mean, because, you know, the, you know, after the doc ex- establishes itself that, you know, this is there's not going to be some closure at the end where everybody gets their payday. Well, I will say this. Yes. Um, the hotel mates on property at Disney have just achieved twenty three fifty an hour. When I started working on this, they were in the 11s. So, and 2350 is dangerously close to a living wage in Anaheim. Yeah. So, they have actually made incredible strides. That's great. And if that's where the hotel maids are, it's going to have to go up from there. And they're not going to be able to retain anybody unless they go up from there. Well, that's, so, that's massive. That is massive. And it's also the interesting thing about the pandemic is a lot of people are like, fuck it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, we're not going to go work. And you can't. I mean, people have an expectation when they show up at that park that the people they greet there are nice. (laughs) And it's very hard to be nice, you know, if when you're making $18 an hour. So let's let's be clear. They have no choice if they believe in the proposition of Disneyland. Mm. Mm. They have no choice but to go radically up with wages. So first of all, I'm going to keep the pressure on as much as I can. I support the unions as much as I can. But there's a bigger issue here. Because wages are only one aspect of this ideology that took over corporate America. Mm. And um, there's there's another ideology kind of becoming more and more prominent. It's the public benefit corporation or the B Corp or things like this. Like, What if Disney became the largest B Corp in the country? I don't, know, I don't know what that is. It's um, basically you agree to a series of promises about uh, transparency, political lobbying, how you treat your employees, how you treat the environment. It's basically, if you're a B Corp, you're a corporation running the way a corporation would run if you gave a shit about human beings. (laughs) As if people mattered. There's a few of those around, aren't there? Yeah. There are a a bunch of them. I I think there's something like 8,000 of them in the United States right now. So little by, and it's growing really quickly. So little by little, smaller corporations are signing on to this pledge and it it relieves, there are legal ramifications to it because it relieves them a lot of shareholder lawsuits um, because they've they've, um, given up the idea of shareholder primacy for its own sake. And so that's massive. Of what? 
shareholder primacy oh, shareholder, is, is shareholder Milton primacy. Friedman's thing it, that yeah, only yeah. shareholders matter. Shareholder right, primacy. Right, right. If you can get past that and start to recognize success as something more broad than simply, you know, if you could say that my success isn't a success if I just dumped a lot of shit in the river that nobody can drink from the river ever yeah, again. Right. That, that actually should count in the company. It should be a cost, the company. Yes. That's what the B Corp movement is about. And like, what if you shifted Disney to becoming a B Corp? Yeah. What, what, imagine it. Yeah. And, and imagine the size of the power of that yeah. company and how many companies might follow. It's not crazy. Larry no, yeah, Fink, who yeah. runs BlackRock Capital, who's the largest trillions of dollars under management, one of the largest investors in the world, has said, I would look favorably on any management who proposed B Corp status um, to the shareholders. Yeah, yeah. So there is a shift, and there are people who normally you would think of as Darth Vader's in this who are suddenly coming around and saying, like, well, oh, we're going to just well, I mean, burn you, this planet up if we don't Well, change. that's right, but it's taken a long time, and, and now what they have to deal with is, like, you know, these brain fucked, you know, you know, just you know, regular people mm-hmm. who have become nihilistic monsters yeah. with no moral compass or no understanding yeah. of repercussions. And they just, you know, something has shifted in a lot of humanity yeah. and it seems to be driven by the desire to see the shit burn. Yeah, I think that is true. Um I don't think many of them are shareholders of large. No, no, of course not. But I'm just saying, like, you know, this was, uh, 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 this is the repercussions of the philosophy that you're talking yeah. about. I think is we've that, arrived at the only logical place we could possibly. When arrive. the grievances become so deep and and the quality of life becomes so compromised right. that it's not about truth; it's just right. about honoring anger, and a lot of that anger is going to be directed at whatever they perceive as as proactive or woke exactly. or or exactly. diminishing their their grievance. Ex- exactly. Exactly, exactly. But mm. let me just say one but. Yeah, sure. <laughs> January 6th, the folks who showed up there, if you <laughs> take out of it, winnow out of it, the evils. Yeah. Uh, and, and you ask people what their analysis was. Much of it was corporations and elites don't care about us. They've taken over. They're running things. And we fucking hate them. That yeah, well, that's great. If it's not if it, wrong, no, it's not wrong. But a lot of them are just sort of like the government. Yeah. Now, granted, the government doesn't function properly, and many of them are owned by corporations exactly. and elites. But that's not that, that connection but, isn't made. But it is important okay. that their yeah. analysis isn't that far off of right. That's right. If you could somehow yeah. take it past that. the government, yeah, exactly. And 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 well, they're they're not just saying government. Like they pick and choose their their corporations. They're angry at. They're angry at Facebook and Meta and sure. whatever else. Okay. But if you can actually. Find Find a way to tap into that yeah. rightness yeah. and connect it to this rightness over yeah. here. Then you have something interesting. Then you have the classes, actually the class, yeah. working together. Okay. And isn't that why we're so divided? Right. That's the thing that scares the powerful more than anything, yeah. is that we put it together. Right. So so it's not, I, I'm very close to hopeless, yeah. but not completely. Well, good. <laughs> well, that's a, and I'm glad you made the movie. Thank you. And Thank uh, you. it's important that people put this information out there and that they're passionate about, you know, facilitating change or at least, you know, putting the ideas out there. You know, I, I, I'm hard on myself that I don't do it enough uh, because it is easy to to get depleted. But, yeah. you, you know, but like this movie is personal and it's it's good and, it, and it's, it, you, you know, and it, it's enlightening, I think, to a lot of people. That, well, thank you for saying that. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, well, Wait thanks. Uh, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. That was a full, rich, deep conversation. Personal, political, um, emotional. Good. 
You can find the movie, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, at americandreamdoc.com. You can also watch it at home on digital on-demand platforms. And, uh, yeah, so why don't we all just, you know, process, think, reflect. My, my, my foot's okay. It just bows out a little bit. And, and we'll, well, I'll reconvene here in a second. So just hang out in it for a minute, will you? Okay, listen, next week on Monday, we have writer and director Tony Gilroy on the show. He's the showrunner of the new Star Wars series Andor. He did the Bourne movies, and he's also the writer and director of one of my favorite movies, Michael Clayton. So I needed some answers, but I'm, you know, like, I'm, I'm not going scene for scene. Me and Brenda did that. You can hear that on the, uh, if you're a full Marin subscriber, next week we're going to post a special episode with me and Brendan spending an hour talking about Michael Clayton, almost scene for scene. But I just, like, it just, Tony Gilroy just blew me away. He's engaged. He's smart. He's got a great personal story. And the Michael Clayton process was, was amazing for me to talk about. God knows I talk about the movie enough. So listen to that and listen to me and Brendan talking about Michael Clayton. But that'll be next week after, I think, we talk to... Uh, Tony Gilroy. But right now, you can listen to the movie talk we posted this week, which was all about movie stars and documentaries and a bunch of stuff that was on our minds because of this week's episodes with Sigourney Weaver and Abigail Disney. Me and Brendan, together, on the mics. We go way back at this point. Are you kidding? I've been with Brendan since 2004. Dude, he grew up with me, this guy. I watched him grow up, always was much more grown up than me. Even when he was 24, he was like, what's the matter with you? What? But uh, yeah, so we're talking. If you have that full Marin subscription, you can hear it. And if you don't have a full Marin subscription, you can click on the link in the episode description or uh, go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. A lot of things happening. A lot of talky talk. Yeah. So listen, I'm in Toronto tomorrow night and Saturday night at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. Next week, I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater on October 6th. And Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center on October 7th. You might want to come to that if you can. So it's not just me and Lara Bites and 12 people, maybe, you know, in in a circle. (laughs) It'll be fine. It's going to be pretty. It'll be nice. We'll be, it'll be fine. I'm in London Uh, doing that live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater on Wednesday, October 19th with comedian and writer David Bedil. Then I've got stand-up shows at the Bloomsbury Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. I think those are sold out. Dublin, Ireland. I'm at Vicker Street on Wednesday, October 26th. Then in November and December, I'm in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Long Beach, California, Eugene, Oregon, Bend, Oregon, Asheville, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee. And finally, my HBO special taping is at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. And now I'm going to show you how impressively limited I am at guitar because this is all I got. This is this is pretty much all I got.
lives. Monkey and LaFonda, Cat Angels Everywhere. That was messy, but there were some good moments. <laughs> 